Do you ever feel like life is just overwhelming? Like it is impossible to do all the things. Uh, It is impossible to remember all the things. When we gather for worship each week, we are being reminded that there is something deeper and bigger than just the overwhelmingness of our lives. And that is that God is with us. That God is with us and he calls us to worship and he promises that through Jesus he will always be with us and he will bring us to live in his house forever. Hear God call us to worship this morning. This is Psalm 23. It's probably familiar to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, We're going to take a look at John chapter 7 this morning and continue on in our uh, series through the Gospel of John together this year. Uh, We're going to look at the first 31 verses of John 7, um, but I'm only going to read a portion of it to you. I'm going to read the first couple of verses and then some verses in the middle, but but I have it printed for you, the whole thing printed for you in your uh, your bulletin because we'll be coming back and referring back to that. But as you are turning there uh, and everything, I want to give us a little bit of the lay of the land of uh, where we're at in John's gospel, what we're transitioning into, because we're transitioning Uh, into a part of John's gospel where Jesus begins to more openly and publicly teach uh, and engage people. Um, In particular, we're going to see him teaching and engaging people in in Jerusalem. And what's naturally going to happen with that is conflict is going to come. Okay, So we're going to see the nature of Jesus' conversations become a little bit more conflictual as we move forward um, in John's gospel. And I want to go ahead and let you know where we're headed this morning, okay? Because remember, this year we're thinking about life with Jesus together. And what we see in our text this morning is that life with Jesus means that we have to come to grips with who he is. We have to come to grips with who Jesus is. And we're going to see that reflected in our passage together this morning. Beloved, what I'm about to read to you is true. And it is God's love for you, and it is life, and it has been purchased with the blood of our Savior Jesus. This is God's word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. All right, I'm going to skip down here to verse 10 for us. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for Jesus at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. 
About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word. Father, we are a needy people. Uh, We need to hear your word. We need to hear truth. Every single one of us in here has sin and brokenness that needs to be met with truth and healing. Would you help us to see that Jesus is both of those things? That he heals our broken spots and that he forgives us of our sin because he is sent from you, your one and only son and our savior. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful, beautiful truth of the gospel together this morning. And in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Have you ever gotten ahead of yourself at something? You know, like, you just, you just jumped right on in, got ahead of yourself. Well, one family story that, that my family likes to tell is, uh, is about um, Christmas Eve. I don't know how old I was, but I was, still, I was still young enough to be really, really excited about Christmas and, and Christmas Eve. And what we did, we had a tradition as a family on Christmas Eve. We would go to a Christmas Eve service, and then we would all go to my great-grandmother's house to have dinner and to, and to exchange gifts with like my broader family on my, on my dad's side. Um, and I really, really loved Christmas Eve. Now, my gra- great-grandmother, we called her Mimi. My Mimi lived on a mill hill. Uh, she grew up in the mills, and, and, and she lived on a mill hill. And if you know anything about mill hills, the, the, the houses are really close together. They're really tight, and they're, and they're small, and the community is really entrenched as well, too. Well, I remember we drove up to, to my Mimi's house that evening, and I was just chomping at the bit. Like, I was, I was ready to get in there. I, could, I knew there was going to be bread pudding. There was going to be sweet potato pie. I knew that there were going to be gifts that were going to be given. I mean, there was so much to be excited uh, about in this, and I'm just really, really, really chomping at the bit. So we pull into my Mimi's front yard. You had to park in the front yard. Uh, so, so we pull into the front yard, and almost before my parents can even get the, the car off, uh, I busted out of the door. I ran as fast as I could 
through the front door of my mimi's house. I ran straight back to the kitchen, which wasn't actually that far away from the front of the house. And then I looked in the kitchen and I saw no one that I knew. Because I'd ran into the neighbor's house. <laughs> I had gotten so far ahead of myself, I was so jazzed up that I didn't even run into the right house. And so I didn't even say anything. I just turned around and bolted right back out and, you know, so embarrassed. But what, our text begins with Jesus' brothers getting ahead of themselves, really. Uh, that enters us into our story together this morning because Jesus' brothers want him to go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And they want him to go up so that he can show off to the people there. So that he can show the people the miracles that he can do. Now, if you guys will remember back to the book of Ezra, we went through together last year, we went through Ezra and Nehemiah, we talked about the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths uh, was a celebration where God's people were remembering God's provision for them as they wandered in the wilderness before they went into the promised land. And so they gathered together and they made these booths or tents and they celebrated this feast for seven days together and they were celebrating that God provided for them, that his grace was still true and real even though they were wandering in the wilderness. Well, Jesus' brothers recognize that Jerusalem is the kind of place where miracle workers and teachers are made famous. And so there's going to be tons of people there who are going to be there, and they, and they know that their brother is going to draw attention. And so they try to convince Jesus to, to come on up to the feast with them. And Jesus responds, and he says, I can't go up there yet. I can't go yet. It's not my time. But you guys go ahead. You guys go ahead. They're not going to hate you when you go up there. But when I go up there, they are going to hate me. They're going to hate me because I'm going to call out and show them exactly how dark their hearts really and truly are. And John even gives us this little inclination here that, that Jesus' brothers don't really get it either. That they don't really believe in the thing that Jesus is saying. Well, Jesus' brothers, they go up to Jerusalem to the feast. Jesus lays back, and then he comes up on his own. He comes up you know, privately, not publicly, is what John says. He's not trying to stick out. Jesus doesn't have an entourage with him. He's not necessarily trying to draw attention to the fact that he's there. Well, then we come to verses 10 through 12 that we read earlier, and we see that in Jerusalem... There is chattering about Jesus. John calls it muttering. The people are talking about Jesus. They're wondering, where's he at? Is he coming? Is he going to be here? There's an anticipation and an expectation that Jesus is going to be there. And they want to know, where's he at? Why don't we see him? Is he going to come? And they're also asking questions about who Jesus is. Like, who is he really? Some are saying he's a good man. Others are saying, no, 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 no. He's not a good man. He's, he's leading people astray. He's a deceiver. We're going to come back to those ideas a little bit later. But in any case, the people who are there talking about Jesus seem to want to keep it on the down low, okay? Because they're afraid of what might happen to them if some of the authorities in the area figure out that they're talking about Jesus. 
Well, the next thing that we see is that Jesus, in the middle of the feast, he walks right up into the temple and he begins to teach. That's verses 14 through 24. Jesus teaches in the temple. And the first thing that people say is, how in the world does this guy know all of this stuff? Jesus is, is what, uh, what I like to call a blue-collar scholar. You see, Jesus didn't go to Harvard Divinity School. Uh, Jesus went to uh, Galilee Community College, and he studied carpentry. And they're wondering, like, how does this guy know all this stuff? He doesn't have any education. How? Yet he says these amazing things that make so much sense of my life and my experience and are really, really compelling. How in the world does this guy know all of this stuff? Well, Jesus tells them exactly where he went to school. Look back with me at verses 16 and 17. Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, I attended the school of the God who created the universe. I have studied under God, and my teaching is not self-determined, but it is given to me by God, my Father. And Jesus even goes on to say that the fact that he does not speak on his own authority, but on God's, should actually attest to what he is saying being true. You see, because he's saying it's rooted in the God who has entered into history throughout time and memorial. And Jesus explains all the more why they should believe in him. He says, you should also know that what I'm saying is true because I'm not saying it for my own glory. It's not to puff me up. It's not to make me look good. I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm teaching what I'm teaching for the glory of my Father. You guys remember the cleansing of the temple back in John 3? That John didn't want us to move any further without us seeing how consumed Jesus was and is. That, the, that his Father get the glory that is due to him for his goodness and his love. And he's saying, you should know that what I'm saying is true because I'm not trying to, I am not trying to make myself look good. I want you to see how wonderful and great my father is. I'm consumed that my father get the glory that is due to him. And then look at verse 18. He specifically says it. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is saying, you should know that what I'm saying is true. You should know. And then in verse 19, Jesus presses in more on them. He presses in more on them by getting at the thing that they value more than anything else. Which is their commitment to keeping the law. And Jesus is saying to them, you don't really keep the law. You actually just use it to prop up and further your own agendas and your own accomplishments. Because if you were really truly following the law, then you would see and you would know that I am the whole point of the law. That everything in the law of God is showing you me. You would know that. 
you would know that I am the one who has come to fulfill the law. And Jesus goes on to tell them, and you know what? By trying to kill me, you are actually trying to destroy the thing that you say that you love the most. You are actually trying to destroy the law of God. And his hearers, they get defensive. And they say, whoa, 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 Jesus. Who's trying to kill you? You must have some sort of demon in you. You must be crazy, Jesus. You must be crazy. And Jesus reminds them of the last time that he was in Jerusalem. You'll remember this. He was at a pool. At a pool called Bethesda. And there was a lame man that was there who had been lame and could not walk for 38 years. And Jesus healed this man. He made this man be able to walk again. And then he digs back into their misunderstanding of the law because they misunderstand the Sabbath and its purposes. You see, they don't seem to get the biggest possible picture of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath means salvation rest. That it means that God is going to make his people whole. Mind, heart, and body. And Jesus even shows them how they misunderstand circumcision as well too. If we go back and look at that. He's saying circumcision is a picture that God shows you for his grace, for his salvation. And you misunderstand that. It's a picture that God is going to make you whole. You see, they don't seem to understand the connection between circumcision and the Sabbath. And they totally miss the connection of what Jesus was doing by healing this lame man. You see, because Jesus is making him whole, he can rest now. He can have Sabbath. Jesus has healed his body. He can walk. He can go to the temple and worship with God's people. Jesus was healing his whole body. He's reminding them that the way that they are using the law, if you'll remember this, is just a house of cards. It's just a house of cards and that they are missing the biggest possible point of Sabbath. That Jesus is going to make us whole. And then in verses 25 through 31, the people hear this teaching and they begin to ask, Why aren't the police arresting this guy? It's clear that what he is saying is that he has the same authority as our God. And that's blasphemy. That's a crime that's punishable by death. Why are are the police not coming and arresting this dude? What is going on here? And then they start to ask themselves, maybe they aren't arresting him because what he's saying is true. Maybe they aren't arresting him because, wait, can this be the Christ? Could this really be the one who is promised? Could this really be the one whom the law was pointing us to? Could this be the one that the Sabbath was pointing us to? God's salvation rest for his people. Could this be the Christ? Well, Those are the events from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, I want us to turn and consider the different ways that those who are interacting with Jesus were trying to make sense of him. 
because there are some real concrete things that are here for us. So we're going to take a look at this question, who is Jesus? And how are these people trying to make sense of who uh, Jesus is? I've got one, two, three, four. I've got five things for us, okay? Um, And I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then we'll come back to them. There are some that think Jesus is just a cultural icon. Some think he's just a good man. Some think he's a deceiver. Uh, Some think he's crazy. And then there are some who are saying, I think he's the Christ. I think he really is who he's saying that he is. All right, let's start with a cultural icon. Jesus' brothers think that Jesus is just the next big thing. That's why they want him to go back to Jerusalem with them. So that he can show off his abilities. They want him to go and show off his talents in the festival in the big city where he's going to get noticed. Where people are going to see him and they're going to flock to him. This is the celebrity Jesus, if you will. This is the Jesus that we might think about at award ceremonies when pop and movie stars want to thank their Lord and Savior before they move forward to talk about receiving the award for ghastly things that they maybe did and said in their music. This is the celebrity Jesus. So Jesus becomes, really at the end of the day, someone who's there to represent my agenda, my aspirations, uh, my accomplishments. So, you know, he gets some credit. I'm happy for Jesus to get a little bit of credit, but most of the credit, credit is really for me and my successes and my aspirations and what I have done. His brothers think that he's just the next cultural icon. Well, the people that we see at the beginning before Jesus comes up into the temple, they have a couple of ways that they're trying to make sense of who this Jesus is. And the first thing that we see is they say, well, he's just a good man. He's just a good man. He is, he's just a good dude. When I was in college, I had a, a, an educational psychology professor that when, when she was describing to us what like the perfect picture of mental health looked like, she had three individuals that she, that, that she mentioned to us. Gandhi was one of them. Eleanor Roosevelt was the other. And Jesus was the other. Jesus is just a good dude. He's been through some stuff. He knows that life is hard. He's not a harsh guy. He seems to care about people. He's got good advice. He doesn't harm people. He helps them. He's something that we should aspire to. He's one of the better human beings that have lived. But really, he's not, he's not actually that imperative in changing my life. I mean, I'm not really attaching any sort of need that I might have to Jesus. I'm not really at- attaching the fact that I have sin that needs to be paid for and that needs to be forgiven and that I need to be redeemed. I- I'm, not, I'm not really willing to go there. But Jesus is a good dude. He's a good guy. And then there are some there that are like, "Mm -mm, nope, don't buy it. He's not a good man. He's leading people astray. Jesus is really just a deceiver. They are claiming that Jesus has some sort of personal hidden agenda here. That he's just trying to use people for his purposes. That Jesus is manipulative. That Jesus is just 
constantly trying to pull some sort of bait and switch on people. And I, I want to stop and double click here and sort of turn this a little bit because I think that there are times that even we can be guilty of, of making Jesus look like he's a deceiver. Here's what I mean by that. When we portray Jesus as never wanting us to feel uncomfortable about anything, then we portray him as someone who is a deceiver. When we propose a Jesus who does not include suffering in his will for us, we make Jesus out to be a deceiver. When we just make Jesus useful in our lives but not really in control, we are guilty of this. When we present love as unqualified affirmation, we make Jesus into a deceiver. Because what's true is that we always have sin that needs to be brought to our attention. That's true. And when we are unwilling to have others help us see that, we make Jesus out to be a deceiver. And look, and when we're unwilling to lean in and to help others see where they might have sin, then we too are trying to make Jesus out to be a deceiver. Now I want to be careful with that because we shouldn't be cavalier with this whole idea. We shouldn't be just, just running around telling everybody else where they're doing everything wrong. we got to slow down. We have to be in the kinds of relationships where that can actually even exist. Where we know that the thing that is undergirding the relationship is the love of God in Christ. But we all have to acknowledge and recognize that there is a reality. We are all always struggling with sin. And we all always need help in seeing that and others pointing us to Jesus. So there's the camp that says Jesus is just leading people astray. He's a deceiver. Well, then Jesus goes up into the temple and he starts teaching people and they start engaging him. It gets a little bit contentious. And then there's a group of people that says, Jesus, you are crazy. Like you're demon possessed. That's how they try to make sense of Jesus. This guy must be crazy. He thinks he understands the law better than we do. He's got to be crazy. And truthfully, at the end of the day, this is the Jesus who can't take that, whatever that is, away from me. This is the Jesus who is crazy if he thinks that he can reorient my entire life. This is the Jesus who's crazy if he thinks I'm supposed to give him every part of my life, my work, my relationships, my sexuality, my vacation, my finances, my kid's baseball team, my kid's classroom, my kid's education. Jesus is crazy if he thinks that I should be giving that to him. I, I understand everything about my life far better than he does. And they're saying, we understand far better about the law than Jesus says. He's crazy if he thinks he can take that away from us. And honestly, beloved, if I slow down for a second and reflect, the truth is, I am guilty of every single one of these. There are times 
I just want Jesus to be the next celebrity icon. And yeah, I'm happy for him to get a little bit of credit over here. But truth be told, I'm the one. I'm the one that I want you to see. I want you to see me and what I've done and what I've accomplished. Yeah, 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 Jesus helped me along the way. But I'm the one that you really should be looking at. A good man? Yep. I'm guilty of just thinking that Jesus was a good man. I'm guilty of thinking that, that, that Jesus was just supposed to be the best marriage counselor out there. That my marriage at the end of the day for a number of years was about me and my commitment to Carrie. And Carrie and her commitment to me. Not about Jesus' commitment to us. He was just there to give us good advice. He was just there to, to, to help us along the way. I'm guilty of accusing Jesus of being a deceiver. Every time that I'm quick to attach bad things happening to myself and to others just with sheer disobedience. Well, if they prayed more, well, if they'd been more involved, well, if I'd prayed more, if I'd been more involved, I'm guilty of that too. And oh yeah, I'm guilty of accusing Jesus of being crazy. For sure. Jesus, you can't take that away from me. About eight months or so ago, uh, it was in the summer, and I've mentioned this to you guys before, um, we went through a spell with one of our little ones, with Luke, where he was really sick. High fever, uh, swollen, uh, swollen um, lymph nodes, glands, really, 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 really swollen. And the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. We were going to the doctor, we were going to the hospital, we were getting tests on him, we could not figure out what was going on, and we were sort of right there at the brink of where you start doing those tests that are, that, that are ruling out really, really major um, sorts of things. And I remember seriously thinking, Jesus, you're crazy if you think that you can take him away from me. If you think that you can take that away from me, if you think that somehow you are going to be a better dad than I am to him. And Jesus had to remind me, and he has to remind us that our children are far better off in his hands than in ours. And that is true. And that he is with us and he will always be with us in and through those things. I'm guilty of everything that every person here says about Jesus and who he is. But what we see in our passage today is that each of those, cultural icon, good man, deceiver, crazy, they're problematic in one way or another. They are either false and just not true or they're not enough. Cultural icon, Jesus is a cultural icon, but he's far more than that. He's the savior of the world. A good man? Of course Jesus is a good man. Of course he is compassionate and gentle. But he is not just an example, beloved. He lays down his life for us. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He redeems us. Deceiver? No, no, no. Jesus is not a deceiver. But you know what? 
He will expose how much we are deceitful and how much we have been deceived. Crazy? Jesus isn't crazy. But he certainly demands that we submit all of our lives, every part of it, to him. And there's certainly mystery surrounding Jesus. He's truly God and truly man. But he's not crazy. Beloved, there is only one option that makes sense. Jesus must be the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of God's people, the bringer of Sabbath rest and wholeness. Jesus is not just someone we throw some credit to when things go our way. He's not just a good man with good advice and someone to aspire to. He's never deceitful. As a matter of fact, he claims to not only have the truth, but be the truth. Jesus isn't crazy. He's exactly who he says he is. He is the Son of God who has come to save us from our sin and heal our brokenness with his own body and his own blood for ours. And that means, beloved, that everything in our lives is subject to Jesus. Our agendas, our aspirations, our work, our parenting, our relationships, our finances, our retirement, the way we use our time, every single bit of it is subject to him. Everything belongs to him, and Jesus has every right to ask us to give him everything. Do you know why? In several places in this section of John's gospel, Jesus mentions that it was not yet his time. Jesus knew that there was a time that was coming. Jesus knew that there was an appointment. Jesus knew that he was going to bleed and break for our sin. He knew that there was going to be a time where he was going to walk all alone to, to die for our sin. That you and I might have forgiveness and life. Jesus knew that he would take every piece and every part of our lives that we are not willing to give over to him and die for it. Jesus knew that he was going to give everything to be with you and with me. All the times that we just treat him like he's a cultural icon or a good man... We misportray him and make him look like he's a deceiver. Call him crazy for reorienting our whole lives and saying, yeah, that belongs to me too. He died for it. He died for it. That we might actually find forgiveness around every turn and every corner of our lives. Every time that we have tried to make Jesus be anything other than who he is. The Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus died for that, beloved. And he brings us forgiveness. And he brings us healing. He brings us Sabbath rest. He is going to make us whole. He is our Redeemer. And Jesus doesn't only want us to hear this and hear that this is true. He wants us to take it in together too. He wants us to come to his table that he has prepared and to feast upon him and know that redemption is real and it's true. That forgiveness has been purchased in his body and in his blood. 
When we come to this table, beloved, we are proclaiming that truth. We are proclaiming that Jesus had an appointment. And that he died for my sin and for your sin. And he purchased forgiveness with his very own body and his very own blood. And we're also celebrating that Jesus is not finished with us, beloved. That he is going to continue to work in us. That he's going to continue to show us our need for his life over and over again. He's going to continue to reveal to you and me how we try to treat him like a celebrity icon. How we just think of him as a good man. How we misrepresent him. How we think that he's crazy if he thinks he can take that from us. And show us that there's something far deeper and far better than any of those things. And it's that he is our God. He is our Redeemer. He's our Savior and he will continue to work in us. Beloved, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And as he continued to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink of it, all of you. As often as we come to this table, beloved... As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord Jesus' death until he comes again and he brings ultimate Sabbath rest and he makes us whole. This table belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you belong to Jesus, then this table is for you. You need it. Jesus doesn't only want you to just hear his word, he wants you to feast together upon him, to take in his word, to take in the gospel. You need it. He actually commands that you come and take it. But if you're here this morning and you have not placed all that you are as best as you can and as best as you know how into Jesus' hands, you have not trusted him and him alone for your salvation, then this table is not for you yet. But the Jesus who is represented at this table He is fully and freely on offer to you right now. Do not leave here today without grappling with that. That Jesus has come to die for your sin and your brokenness and to bring healing and forgiveness to you. At this time, I'm going to ask the elders that are serving with us if they would come up. And as they're coming up, um, give a little bit of an explanation of Uh, how we're going to take the the supper together this morning. If you're on the ends, there is a table that is uh, at the the end of your aisle. You can just come and and come by that table. If you're in the middle, if you'll come here, there's going to be a a station on each side. um, And there will be a common loaf for you to pull off of. And there will also be a cup for you to grab as well, too. Uh, If you're here this morning and you have any sort of allergies... Uh, We have an allergy-free bread that will be at each table, and you are welcome to to take that. And also, if you don't want to pull off of the common loaf, you're you're not cool with the germs being uh, transitioned over and everything, uh, please feel free to to take that as well, too. Um, And one last thing. As you're coming forward, remember to put your bags and your books up underneath your chairs so that folks aren't tripping. Um, as they come forward. I'm going to pray for us and then give us a few seconds to pass everything out. And then please uh, come.
proclaim and celebrate. Hang on to the elements. We'll take them together uh, after everybody has gotten it, and we'll take them together. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for uh, this meal that you have placed in front of us, a tangible reminder of your gospel, a tangible reminder that you want us to not only hear your word, but you want us to take it in and to taste it and to feel it and know that you are good and know that our Savior willingly came and gave his life for us not for his own glory, but for the glory that is due to you, Father. For your love and your goodness toward us. Holy Spirit, we pray that as we come to this table, that you would make this means of grace effectual in our lives. We pray that in confidence, knowing that you are going to grow us even in taking this meal together. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, but before we leave here this morning, beloved... God does not want us to leave here without knowing that we are defined by his word. And so hear this, take it in, and strive this week to live like we really, really, really believe that it is true. The Lord will bless you and he will keep you. This week his smile will be upon you and he will be gracious to you. Today, this week, this year, and forever and ever and ever, God's presence will be with you. He will give you his peace. You will enter into his Sabbath rest. And he will make you whole all because of Christ. Go in peace.